AIG is falling, Wells Fargo is cruising, and Fannie Mae is bringing the pain. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. It is Friday. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. Right here next to me is David Hansen, and hopefully not too many of you are watching this through uh, hungover, hungover vision after a wild uh, Halloween. David, today is November 1st, mm-hmm. the beginning of November, the beginning of the month where it feels like just over the last couple of years, there's been this wave of people who decide November is the month to get lazy and stop shaving. Yes. No more shaving in November. I've heard this. There's also the, the, the mustache in November and all that. This year, I've decided to join in. I can't, I can't actually grow a mustache. I can't really grow facial hair in general. It looks, looks terrible, and that's part of the fun here. But I will not be shaving for all of November, and I will be doing it to, to help a cause that's important to me. Uh, that's curing Alzheimer's. Um, my grandfather had Alzheimer's. He had it for a number of years before he passed away. It was actually it was very, very difficult because it was sort of like losing him twice, once to Alzheimer's, and then uh, later on. So this month I will not be shaving. And I will be looking to support the Cure Alzheimer's Fund. The, that can be found at curealz.org. Mm-hmm. And the way this is going to work, the way I'm working this, this is, this is on me. This is, not, this is not a full supported thing. I should be clear about that. Uh, people can donate to Cure, uh, the Cure Alzheimer's Fund. And at the end of the month, if I get antsy and I shave before November is over, I will match donations. I'm going to donate myself, but then I'll match donations up to $500 if I shave before the end of uh, November. And uh, again, that's curealz.org. And everybody, uh, all the viewers at least, maybe we'll tweet some pictures for the listeners. We will. The viewers at least can see how ridiculous I will look trying to... Well, it's a, it's a good cause, and I'll be ridiculing you, trying to, to goat you into shaving. Uh, and before we get to the headlines today, uh, we should say that we did have technical difficulties with the yes, podcast sadly, yesterday. Sadly. It wasn't anything wrong with your iTunes. It was on our end, so we apologize for the podcast not being up. It's up there now, so go out and listen to the Halloween edition. There's never the anything wrong with my iTunes. I don't okay. use iTunes. We'll but you can also get the show on Stitcher. Boom. All right. We should start the show. Either. All right. <laughs> Getting to the headlines. First headline of the day uh, from the Wall Street Journal. AIG profit rises on property and life insurance operations. Uh, following the announcement, following the conference call early trading today, the stock is down 6%. Uh, I think this is, this is a way overreaction. I think most of the reaction actually comes from uh, the conference call. Uh, Robert Ben Moshe essentially said that they're, they're not going to give updates anymore on these aspirational goals that they have for the company, one of which was to be at a 10% uh, return on equity by 2015. He said they may not even reach the aspirational goals by 2015. They're still dedicated to the goals, but it sounds like the going is a little bit slower. Still, I think that this is an overreaction. The results look good. The core businesses, which is what we talk about, we talk about we want to see improvement in the core businesses. The property and casualty insurance looked better. Combined ratio, better. Sales, better. You've got to back out some currency effects. Mm -hmm. Life insurance, mortgage guarantee, all look like they're moving in the right direction. And think about it this way. When you think about that 10% ROE, maybe they don't get there as soon as expected, but you're paying a 0.7 times tangible book value for AIG stock right now. So even on a 6% uh, return on equity, you're still getting a realized return on equity to your investment of around 8%. We love Visa here. We've talked a lot about how much we love Visa. But for that 18% return on equity you're getting, you're paying almost five times book value. So 
I think that puts in, in light what you're getting at AIG, even with a lower return on equity. I, I agree. Overreaction. I think if there's people out there that have been watching AIG and say, maybe I missed the boat, maybe this is your, your catalyst for getting off the sideline and maybe going out and picking up some shares of AIG, I see it definitely more as a buying opportunity than a reason to be nervous. Absolutely. Next headline was from Bloomberg. Wells Fargo said to settle FHFA claims for less than a billion dollars. So this is very similar to the settlement that J.P. Morgan is trying to work through. Or no, this is similar to the settlement that they did settle last Friday um, for $4 billion. Less than a billion over at Wells Fargo, so not quite as bad as J.P. Morgan. And this is still reported. They haven't come out and made anything official with the SEC yet and filing it. But less than a billion dollars, that's pretty much a rounding error at Wells Fargo in the long run. So I guess it's one less... One less thing on their checklist, and their legal checklist is getting pretty small from this, what I've seen. Th- this, is, this is actually really pretty surprising to me, and they're talking about this being a confidential agreement, which is even more surprising to me. It, it all just, it's, it's a little bit strange. I mean, Wells Fargo is the top uh, mortgage originator in the U.S., and they acquired Wachovia, which wasn't exactly the most disciplined lender out there, so that they'd be settling for this small amount uh, is just really surprising compared to uh, J.P. Morgan and uh, and Bank of America. And this, I think, for Wells Fargo shareholders, this may be really great news. I, I mean, this, this may be a sign that Wells Fargo either really didn't have the problems that the other banks had or is doing something differently in terms of being able to get better uh, uh, preferential treatment. Either way, good news. Could also be bad news for J.P. Morgan and Bank of America shareholders if this really does say, hey, these two banks really were that much worse. Mm -hmm. (coughs) Third headline. Third headline is from Reuters. Uh, The headline is Fannie Mae sues nine banks for rigging LIBOR. Uh, The nine banks, they include Barclays, Rabobank, RBS, Royal Bank of Scotland, and UBS, all of which have already settled legal claims over LIBOR. Uh, the group also includes Bank of America, Citigroup, JP Morgan, Credit Suisse, and Deutsche Bank. Fannie Mae is seeking $800 million in damages overall. Mm-hmm. So when you spread that over this number of banks, it's not that big of a deal. It's, it's not a very large settlement. The, the issue that I see here is that if Fannie Mae is able to prove in some way, and in a, in a court uh, agrees with their proof, that they had damage from this LIBOR thing. Opens up the door a little bit. <sighs> wow, yeah. Opens, up, opens up the door a lot. Because then a, a, basically any other party that used LIBOR or was doing business with these banks with LIBOR involved, then they can say, hey, look, we were done in injustice. We lost money. So on this settlement, it's not a big deal. $800 million, like you said, not a, not a big deal. Could open up some other doors, but in the long run, I can of worms is what that, that's the that's what it is. There's no way of quantifying this right now, and that's when you look at valuations of banks and they're low, and people saying, "Well, there's that legal uncertainty." This is one of those things that it is a legal uncertainty. We're not sure who's going to step forward, but I'm not too worried about it. Okay, uh, exciting week now in the rear view for the most part. Uh, we've got a little bit left of today, but but what are was there anything that happened this past week that jumped out at you that you want to underscore for investors? So we saw the mortgage REIT sector, American Capital Agency, and some couple other of them. Uh, they reported earnings not great. The reception to American Capital Agency's earnings, I think it was down 8 9% in the day. So pretty ugly reaction there. But I think it highlighted that going forward, times are going to be not as good as they were. I mean, this is the last couple of years have been great for American Capital Agency, great for shareholders, great for their business. 
it's not going to be that great going forward, but I was encouraged by some of the comments I heard from them taking a longer-term view. This sector was a very hot sector for individual investors to come in and get dividends. I think it may lose some of that favor right now, but that doesn't mean that this sector can't produce returns over the long run. I think the business still makes sense. The fundamentals are still there. It's just going to be a little bit harder. But if you're taking a long-term view, I think there's still opportunity in the sector and with American Capital Agency. You buying American Capital Agency yet? I'm not buying. I'm not buying American Capital Agency. I like some of the other ones. In you the like Annaly better? I like Annaly better if we're going to be specific. But I don't think... Why wouldn't we be specific? Come on. We can be specific. You don't think... We're all friends. I don't, think the road, I don't think the road is ending for American Capital Agency. It's going to get rougher, but they can still deliver for shareholders in the long run. I, the, the two things that I'm that I'm going to underscore come from today's from today's headlines that we just covered, and, and I I really want to make sure that we put a uh, uh, let everybody know just how important these are. The, that Wells Fargo settlement, number one. It, what I did yesterday is I went back and I looked at the the foreclosure settlement when all of the banks or a group of the big banks got together and they had to pay out it was a collective twenty five billion dollars for the for the for- foreclosure missteps. Mm-hmm. When that came out, Wells Fargo was basically on par with the amount that it paid out with, for the most part, with the other banks. Bank of America, far and away the largest. I think that was, they paid out somewhere in the $11 billion range. And that was, again, in terms of fines, but also uh, aid to homeowners, that sort of thing. Wells Fargo was, was closer to the $6 billion range, just above $6 billion, actually paid out a little bit more than J.P. Morgan. So based on that, it's my thought. It was my thought that uh, that Wells Fargo was sort of on par with all of the other big banks in terms of of what it did during the crisis, what it did after the crisis, and what kind of legal penalties it would it would see. Uh, that's called into question if this uh, if the if we believe this settlement with Fannie Mae for less than a billion dollars, and that's a that's a big deal for shareholders. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also AIG uh, earnings, uh, more particularly the reaction to them. Uh, AIG's stock has done really well so far this year. And what's really interesting here is that AIG, again, you're getting like a, a 30% discount to tangible book value. So the story up until up until maybe a year ago or so was really about does, does AIG, is AIG really a, any kind of a good business? Now when you see a reaction like this to saying, well, maybe we don't get the 10% ROE by 20, 2015, now the, the focus has changed to AIG as a healthy, growing, mm-hmm. uh, high-quality business. And that's a big change. And, and I think from the perspective of, of shareholders, that's an important thing to keep in mind. And it's an important thing to keep in mind, too, when you're still, like I said, looking at a 30% discount to tangible mm-hmm. book. And, and that, that multiple, that price-to-book multiple, has, I mentioned on the show yesterday, expanded 50% this year. So the market is getting to the point where saying, hey, we care a little bit more about the business rather than just whether they're going to survive anymore. Mm-hmm. I think the business will do fine in the long run. I agree with you. The stock still looks good here. And, and meanwhile, that book value continues to grow. Yep. All right. Zillow. Let's talk Zillow now. Because next Tuesday, Zillow is reporting earnings. Yes. And you had an article up on the site yesterday talking about something innovative, something first time that Zillow is going to be doing. Tell us a little bit about that. First time ish uh, back in well, May. Ish, yeah. ish, right. 2 quarters ago for the first they were the first public company to include the hashtag in their earnings calls. So you can tweet questions with the hashtag #zearnings and there it is on the screen if you if you're watching if you're listening it's #zearnings. You can answer you can post your questions on Twitter 
and it's possible that the Zillow management team, Spencer Raskoff and team, will take your questions and respond to them. And they started this back in May, and they wanted to really promote it. They want to get more involved with their shareholder base. So and they wanted to work with a top-flight top organization flight that's dedicated to shareholders and, and, getting, and, and getting shareholders closer to companies and the management teams that run them. Correct, which is that we're, we're partnering with them to promote this, this opportunity for shareholders good to, choice by them. To, get their, to get their voice heard. So submit your questions uh, on Twitter, on Facebook. You can go to the, the, the Zillow Facebook page. So it's a great thing. Well, better yet, go to your article. They should go to your article. Go to my article. And there's a comment section at the bottom of the article. They can leave comments there, and we'll be going through those comments and mm-hmm. potentially submitting some of those to the, the Zillow team, right? Yes. So that's that's the one half of the earnings. I'll, I'll touch on the actual earnings briefly. The stock's been obviously on a huge run this year. It has been on fire. I think it's up 200% or something. And I just wanted to, to mention real quick, if we, there, there's a reason for this. And if we look at a chart of kind of what the Zillow business has done over the last couple of years, this is from back in 2009. So this is monthly users in the blue. And if you're listening, basically looks like a hockey stick here going up and to the right. Uh, so monthly users has soared to, to almost 60 million monthly users, people going to the platform. And when we look at the premium... Uh, so about, ten, about 10,000 monthly users back in 2009, just under 10,000. Yep. Now you're at... 50, about 55,000? Right. Well, that was as of last quarter, and they've jumped at, I think, in August, there were over 62 million monthly users there. And the red line there is just below it, and oh, that sorry, is... that's in millions? Yes, so that's just, in millions. Okay, that's in millions. So just under 10 million to whatever 62 you million. Yep. I was listening. And then if you look at the red line there, that's their agent subscription. That's, if you're a shareholder, that's what you, you care about. Those are the people that are paying Zillow money uh, to subscribe to their services and their platforms. So you want to watch that number continue to go up with the monthly users. If that starts to, to, to flatten and monthly users keep going up, that, that's okay. But you really care about the agent subscribers. People so actually for, paying 40 million money. as of last quarter, 40 million, or, or was that May or whatever? Yep. 40 million paying members. Correct, yes. So those are real estate agents wow. that pay Zillow uh, for these services and, and the leads they get from Zillow. So that's the number that you want to focus on when they report next week. Are there really that many real estate agents? There, there are, are a lot of real, lot real estate, estate agents. agents. Okay. And, and then in, in addition to the, the Twitter conversation, uh, we will also be, we'll have an exclusive interview, not you and I, but, but other fools, Jason, Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger, mm-hmm. will have an exclusive interview that we'll be posting on our website Tuesday right. with Spencer Raskoff. Absolutely. It's very cool stuff. Very, very cool stuff. Uh, emails. We've, we've got some more emails. Uh, we're getting enough emails now that, that we, we can't, uh, we're not, we're not going to address them all at one time, mm-hmm. uh, but we are going to be choosing emails to, to have on this show. The email address, WTMI at fool.com. Love getting these emails. Love getting questions, comments, whatever. Uh, if you hate the show, you can email us. If you love the show, people can email us. WTMI at fool.com. So the email we got yesterday was not actually an email. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> Close enough. Uh, it was on Twitter. And here it is. It, the, the, comment, the Twitter comment was, love the show. Cue for Matt K. And that would be me. It looks like you have over 60 stocks in your portfolio. Why not just index? And that comes from Matthew Young on Twitter. And I'll go ahead and mention our, our Twitter handle, too. It's at TMF Financials. We are very transparent here at The Motley Fool. And so you can see, you can see what readers can see what you own, they can see what I own, just all they have to do is search on the, the full website and they can find an entire list of what I own. And indeed, on the list of stocks that I own, there are quite a number of them. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of reasons for this. One of them is I have 
a couple different buckets, strategic buckets that I, that I invest in. One of them I call my uh, Ben Graham bucket. And essentially what it is is I, I, I blindly look for uh, stocks that are trading below half of tangible book value. This is sort of similar to uh, a strategy that Ben Graham used. Uh, stocks trading below half of tangible book value. I invest in a whole bunch of them. Um, I do a very small amount of research other than looking at that multiple just to make sure that, that I think that it's an ongoing business, a legitimate business. Um, and then I look for them to, to get back above tangible book value. I don't, I don't invest more in them. I, it's a, it's a, a similar stake or it's the same stake for every single company in the portfolio. And so it's a, a broad stake. And, and I don't think that there's really an index that does that. Or I, where, where, And where does that fit in your broader portfolio? Is that 10% of your portfolio? It's, it's about 10%. Okay, so about it's, 10% so it's pretty of my small. Overall. Yeah, it's relatively small. Uh, another reason there are so many stocks in there is that uh, kind of like Peter Lynch, I sometimes like to take tracking positions in stocks. So if there's a company that, that I really like um, and want to make sure that I force myself to do the additional research on it, sometimes I'll take a small position in that stock um, in order to get myself to do the extra work, learn more about the company. And then there's sort of my core portfolio of the stocks that I, that I own a lot of and, and own for the long term. That's Berkshire Hathaway is in that mix. I actually have Walmart in that mix. Um, Bank of America is in that mix as well, and uh, and Markel is in that mix. Are, as well. are those your top three for full disclosure? We're going full disclosure here. Is it is it Berkshire, Walmart, uh, Bank of America? I, I'd have to check. It it, it changes as the uh, as the stocks move mm-hmm. around. Berkshire Hathaway is far and away my largest investment, though. And you still feel comfortable with that today? Yeah, easily. Why wouldn't I? Well, would you feel comfortable making an even bigger part of your portfolio, or yeah. are you happy with where it is now? Uh, I, I th- there's a possibility that it would be a, a bit of a drag on the overall returns of my portfolio, mm-hmm. but comfort level, I would feel perfectly comfortable having it as a larger percentage of my portfolio. Uh, I should also mention that I actually do invest in some, some index funds. There's certain uh, parts of the market, uh, some areas of international investing, uh, bonds. I, I do have a I don't have a huge bond exposure, but I have some bonds in my portfolio. I look to index funds for my exposure to some of those areas. Uh, so I have some, some index funds in there as well. All right. Good answer. Thanks, David. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks for, thanks for the question, Matthew. Again, our Twitter, our Twitter handle is... Oh, yeah, that, that wasn't me, Matthew. That was Matthew asking the question. It was both. Oh, okay. Team um, our Twitter handle, at TMF Financials, email address, at, uh, WTMI at fool.com. Uh, we love getting those questions and comments. Game for today. It is Friday. Drumroll. It's time for Investing Chicken. Cool. I cut off the drumroll. Sorry. Well, we got that guy. Investing Chicken. Uh, what we do is we pick out a stock every week, a company every week, and we present scenarios. And those scenarios are designed to try to kick the other person out of the stock. person who jumps out of the stock is the Investing Chicken. We have our chicken hat, we have our once chicken again, hat. our chicken headdress. You had to run downstairs to grab that before the show because we forgot it. Um, okay, I will, start, I will start off. I'm going to go ahead and start off. Today, we're going with Two Harbors, the mortgage REIT. Uh, this is my favorite mortgage REIT. I'm going to try to kick you out of it. First scenario. I'm a fan of it, too, so I like it as well. That's good. So this well, let's, let's see how much of a fan you are after this. <laughs> Two Harbors does away with its REIT classification changes itself to a diversified non-REIT financial business and it pays it, it starts paying a drastically lower dividend based on its current mix of business today i 
don't think I would be interested in that company per se. Boom! <laughs> Winner. <laughs> All right, I'll wear it for the for the one scenario, and then I'll take it off, no, and I'll no, say no. why. I wore it for, I wore it for the entire um, rest of the show last week. I don't know if you remember that. So, so based on their, their mix of business right now, with such a large portion of their portfolio in agency mortgage-backed securities, it doesn't make sense not to be a REIT there. If they continue to diversify into more businesses and collect management fees on those, then I'd potentially be interested in. <laughs> but with that, I would I don't think I'd be interested in the stock if that was the case. Okay. All right, my scenario for you is I just mentioned the agency mortgage-backed securities. They currently have about 80% of their portfolio in agency, 20% in non-agency. So those are a little bit more risky, not uh, guaranteed by Fannie or Freddie. If that proportion goes to 50-50 and leverage goes to six times, and I should say that their desired range of where they want to be with leverage is between three and five. So they're at the very, they're, they're above their high end of their range and they're moving into riskier securities. This is, this is easy. I am, I'm, I'm staying in the stock at that point. Look, with the mortgage REITs, it's a jockey play. It's all about the management team. And the reason that I like Two Harbors better than some of the other mortgage REITs is I think that they have a top-notch management team. So if they're shifting their mix to – they're shifting the, the, the company's mix to more non-agency uh, securities mm-hmm. and they're expanding leverage, well, I got I to gotta think that they see something. They see some great opportunity in the market that they're going after. All right. Okay, here's my second scenario. Two Harbors price starts screaming. The stock starts screaming ahead. And all of a sudden, it's trading at 1.5 times book value while the other mortgage rates are left in the dust, all, all still fetching between 0.8 and 0.9 times book value. So you got a signif- Did you read mine? You've got a significant premium. Did you read my next scenario? <laughs> because I had the same one. I, I had the same one that it, it goes to 1.5 times book value. And the business doesn't change that much. I, I don't know if I'd be selling, but I don't think I'd be buying more unless there was a really good case in terms of the business changing, that they had great opportunities and their returns are going to go sky high compared to everyone else. Unless that's the case, I don't think I would be selling, but I'm holding. So let me, let me put it this way. Um, uh, two Harbors. No, leave that, on. <laughs> leave that on. That's great. Two Harbors, 1.5 times book value. You you have no other money to invest. You don't own Annalee. Would you not sell Two Harbors to pick up Annalee at that point? Annalee is at 0.85 times book. Two Harbors is at 1.5. I would book. You would. I would. Yes. You would sell Two Harbors to pick up Annalee. Yes. Given that scenario. Yes. Okay. Finishing off the show for today for the week. David, leave that. Uh, the, we're done with the segment. I can take it off. Aww. Aww, you're a wuss, man. All right. Finishing off with Twitter, David, give us our first tweet. First tweet comes from downtown Josh Brown. He says, small caps are selling for 19.5 times 2013 earnings. That's a 25% premium to large caps. They've been in an upward trend relative to the S&P for 13 years. Thoughts? I, I've talked like about, I, yeah, well, I mean, not given that much of a premium. I've talked about this a lot before. I've written some articles for Fool.com about this that I think people are almost beginning to forget that it's not automatic that small caps always outperform large caps. There has been some research done in the past mm-hmm. that there is uh, somewhat of a, a, of a long-term premium for smart, small caps versus large caps, and uh, there, there are reasons for that. But in terms of, of, of market timelines, there are times when large caps will outperform small caps. There are times when small caps will outperform large caps. 13 years, as Josh points out. This is a long, long time for small caps to be outperforming by that much. I think it's going to turn around at some point. And I think even when you and I look at the financial sector 
as you go into the smaller banks, the smaller financials, they look pricier. The, yeah, the prices are the prices are much higher. I think there are better bargains today in the large cap part of the market. You just have to be a little bit patient because you don't know when that prefer, when that investor preference is going to turn around. Next tweet. Next tweet comes from Value Walk at Value Walk. James Gorman, dangerous to second guess Warren Buffett. Was this going to be our third tweet? It may be a matter tweet. We can we can okay. Here's what James Gorman was talking about. He was talking about Warren Buffett said that companies should not be using shareholder capital. That's capital at the company. That's all Mm -hmm. shareholder capital to make charitable contributions. And Gorman, he's the the CEO of Morgan Stanley. For those who don't know, uh, he said it's dangerous to second guess Warren Buffett because he's right so often. Uh, Is there anything else, David? You would not want to second-guess. No, 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 let me put it this way. What would you second-guess Warren Buffett on? Oh, that's a tougher question. Um, can I do the first one? Or what, what about you? I'll think about it. I'll put it on you. What would you second-guess? What do you disagree with Buffett on? A diet rife with cheeseburgers, okay. cherry Coke, and C's candies, all of which are delicious. I mean, I'm a vegetarian, so I don't eat the, the cheeseburgers. Cherry Coke's delicious. C's candy is delicious. But he does not exactly have the best. I would disagree with his brain food. His choice of housing. He's got the fairly conservative house. I would if if you if you had that kind of money. I think I'd have a bigger house. I mean, I would want like a basketball court in my house. I don't think Warren has inside the house. Inside Warren. We're not talking backyard. No. no, Would you have the chain link? uh, (laughs) I don't think I'd have the chain link fence (laughs) or the chain link net. But I disagree with him on that. All right, let's finish off with the third tweet. All right, final tweet of the day from our own Jason Moser. He's at TMFJMO. He says, "Do not." Chase the container store stocks stock today. That shares are up 100% shows IPOs are not set up for the individual investor in mind. The container store, it's a store that has containers. And really expensive. Really nice they're, containers. Well, they're also really, really expensive containers. And they, they can come to your house and they can set up a, a closet, a container, a, a pantry, if you will. It's, uh, it's a nice service. Yeah. Uh, they went public today. The stock is up over 100%, as it said in the tweet. Are there any IPOs that don't go up 100% anymore? Well, that's exactly the thing. It seems like all of them do. And the interesting thing here is when we think about the financial sector, when we think about the uh, financial companies, this could be good news for anybody who's a big uh, IPO underwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, th- think about like a, like a Bank of America with, with uh, Morgan's uh, – not Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch in there, uh, Morgan Stanley, <laughs> Goldman Sachs. These are really big companies, and the, un- the IPO underwriting piece of the business, it's nice, but it's not the biggest part of their pie. So you're a big fan of Ever- – does Evercore have much – you're a big fan of Evercore. Do they have much exposure to the IPO market? Uh, I think it's more advisory. It's more advisory, yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the smaller guys like uh, Green Hill and Lazard is mm-hmm. more advisory focused. But that would be the place to look is to the smaller companies where IPO underwriting would have a bigger, bigger impact on the business. Reckless prediction on Twitter's IPO first day. Reckless prediction? Reckless prediction. How, how much it's going to be up on the first day? Yeah, we're just having fun here. Don't hold us to these. Uh, down 5%. I'm going down... 12%. <laughs> you were going to go 20, weren't you? I was going to go 20, but that's aggressive. We'll go 20. All right, it's I'll go reckless. 20. I'll go 20. And is this Price is Right style? Like, you can't go over or under? Can't go over. Can't go over. Can't go over from a negative? Either way. It'll be interesting to see you when Twitter goes public. That'll be a, a spectacle, but I will be most likely watching on the sidelines. Our Twitter address, once again, at TMF Financials. Our viewers and listeners can tweet at us, uh, questions, comments, whatever. Email address, 
WTMI at fool.com. Again, for questions, comments, all of that good stuff. And that's the show. Are we forgetting anything? That's the week. That is the week. All right, folks, thanks for watching. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. We will see you next week.